Hi listeners, in this episode of The Dicto, I'll discuss time perception with Dr. Devin Tehune from Goldsmiths, University of London. Enjoy! One of the most uh, uh, challenging aspects of uh, artificial intelligence is uh, understanding consequence. What do you see as the role of uh, time perception in perceiving consequence? That's a yeah, that's a really fascinating question. I haven't I haven't thought a great deal about, but um, what we do know is that timing is certainly closely tied with your perception of responses in your environment to actions that you make. So for example, um, things like your what's known as your sense of agency. So how in control you feel over your actions, right? Um, we, we come up with a sense of agency. We come up with a sense that, or a perception that we control some type of response because there's what's known as kind of like a, a temporal contiguity, right? So like when I press a doorbell and then I'll hear the ring inside the house, I perform some type of action and there's an immediate kind of consequence, which basically gives me feedback that I played a kind of a a causal role in that. Um, So that's a, and and most of the paradigms in which those types of phenomena are studied are ultimately temporal in nature. So for example, if you just do a simple task where you have a participant press a button and then an auditory tone comes up, say like 250 milliseconds later, when you extend the duration between the motor response and the auditory tone, people experience less sense of agency. They feel like they have less control. They have less of a causal influence in producing the auditory tone. Uh, how do you measure the sense of agency? Sure. So there's two kind of contexts which is typically measured. Uh, first is basically these explicit judgments about how in control you feel. And these are obviously quite valuable because they align with our conscious you know, perceptual states of how in control we feel. But of course, they're always going to be somewhat limited because they're just entirely subjective in nature, right? And I mean, you're always going to have a bit of that problem whenever you're doing psychological research, particularly anything related to perceptual states and consciousness more generally. Now, that's one of the reasons why a lot of researchers have moved to these types of temporal paradigms. So for example, it's been repeatedly shown um, that... um, when you are voluntarily making a response that the perceived duration from when you make the motor response to when you hear the auditory tone, you actually perceive it as contracted, as shorter than it truly is, okay? Um, When you're making a voluntary response compared with an involuntary response, okay? So if somebody like were to move my finger and press the button and then a tone occurs and you have me estimate Um, when, you know, I made the motor response, when the tone occurred and so on, I'm actually going to be a bit more accurate in terms of what that duration is if it was completely passive. Whereas if I'm voluntarily producing the motor response, I perceive the response and the tone as basically coming closer together. This is a phenomenon that's known as um, intentional binding that was kind of um, really pioneered by Patrick Haggard at uh, UCL. Now, there has been some recent controversy about this Um, It's a little bit complex, but basically they've looked at um, a number of different ways by which you can do this um, in different types of virtual reality contexts. And essentially what they found is that they think it's less about actually 
forming an intention to make a motor response and more about that when we perceive two things to be causally bound together, then we perceive them to kind of become um, the duration to become contracted. All right. So if we, we assign a causal link between two events, we actually perceive it as being closer together than they normally might be in time. So th that means that there's a fundamental bias in uh, the way we perceive causation and time. Yes, uh, that's that's um, kind of one um, way of looking at it in terms of how a number of um, psychologists and neuroscientists are now interpreting this data. So they're now saying that this temporal contraction might not be a marker of sense of agency. Um, there's only a couple studies that are kind of pointing in that direction, and it's certainly very exciting and interesting, but I think the kind of there's not a conclusive answer just yet. But um, in short, we, you know, we have these various types of temporal distortions, certainly when we assign um, causal links between our actions and environmental uh, responses. Um, and so in the context of AI, which I should just be, I should uh, just caution that I am not an expert at all. And so I can't, say anything incredibly intelligent about AI here, unfortunately, today. Nevertheless, in the context of AI, that would be something that you'd want to start thinking about in terms of the, the consequences of, what, of an AI agent's um, responses in the environment. Um, but I would presume that in a kind of a, an AI system, you, would, you wouldn't necessarily have to deal with these, a lot of these issues because you wouldn't have these kind of these these temporal distortions that we form um, from interacting with objects in our environment over a lifetime, where we basically develop these types of um, biases of various kinds. I think the value here is rather of understanding what do we take for granted already. So if there are certain biases that we're already used to, if we're trying to replicate a system, if we know, if we're aware of the biases, we're able to also be more clear about the intended behavior of the final system. Um, certainly, yes. That's certainly going to be um, something you, that would 100% need to be addressed and be focused on. That would certainly be a salient um, issue. In terms of volition and temporal causation link, that reminds me of the trolley problem study where the physical distance between pressing a button or pulling the lever versus actually pushing the person would impact how people would judge that behavior. That's, that's a, yeah, that's an interesting parallel. I haven't, I haven't thought about that, but certainly both temporal and spatial distance um, allow us to also have a kind of a, for lack of a better term, uh, some type of moral distance as well. Um, and so, when something, anything, when something's closer, um, both physically um, as well as temporally, then um, how we perceive it and its emotional impact and moral significance is certainly going to change. Um, and just as a side note, there's a lot of um, research linking uh, spatial and temporal dimensions. So there's a good amount of work to implicate that, um, to implicate that they at least, or at least to suggest that they have partially overlapping neural systems. So if you look in the brain, uh, parietal cortex, for example, seems to be involved in particularly the storage of potentially both temporal and spatial representations to some extent, particularly in, in memory. 
Uh, hippocampus is a, a very important structure for various types of spatial processing. And occasionally you, you will see it, um, activation or um, activation of hippocampus in timing studies, or at least some indirect um, evidence that implicates hippocampus in uh, time perception. So there's certainly some overlap there. Um, um, I'm less aware of timing and kind of a moral cognition um, literature, though, but that would seem to certainly be have some bearing, though, definitely. In terms of perceiving, the, uh, I know I'm aware of the research you did in terms of the sub, um, uh, measuring the time taken uh, th through uh, replicating the length of a, uh, audio signal where a person would listen to the audio and then they would have to press uh, the uh, press a button for the amount of time they think the uh, audio signal played. How would you see uh, the role of uh, what do you see as the main insights gained from such experiments? Sure. So um, in our lab, we do a lot of um, what are known as fairly basic psychophysical timing experiments. So um, just because it might not be as familiar to um, your listeners, basically uh, what we'll typically do is um, in a simple paradigm, we might basically train people initially on two intervals. All right. So maybe something like, 300 milliseconds and 700 milliseconds. So we'll repeatedly play like auditory tones, just like simple beeps for 300 milliseconds, 700 milliseconds, and train people to discriminate those that one is short and one is long. And that's relatively easy. And participants um, are basically, you know, within just a very small period of time are able to achieve 80, 90% accuracy, no problem. Um, and many people are 100% accurate uh, right from the start. So we initially do that. Then what we do is we present them with a wide range of intervals, anywhere from the 300 to 700 milliseconds. And we ask them to make judgments regarding each stimulus interval, whether it's closer to the short or closer to the long that they previously trained on. So this is what's known as a temporal bisection task. And there's other variants of this that you can do. There's many different types of timing tasks, but this is a very common one. So then basically what you can do is when you plot out uh, the proportion of long responses um, at, each, uh, at each stimulus interval, it exhibits this kind of like S-shaped sigmoid um, curve type shape where basically you can then fit what are known as psychometric functions to the data and you can then extract certain parameters um, in a way that you cannot really do if you're just looking at a simple thing like how many errors somebody makes or the proportion of errors. So could you please uh, just explain a little bit better, which, if you plot which two variables and which two measurements would you obtain a, a, the sigmoid fun function that you would afterwards be fitting over? So when we plot out, um, basically on your x-axis, you have your stimulus intervals, and on your y-axis, you have the proportion of long responses. And then it basically... Um, you get this S shape. So in your, I think if the, we got mirror reversal here in the video, it'll look like this. Yeah. Um, so you then have that S shape um, and that's a very characteristic pattern. So basically when the intervals are really close to the short, people tend to do really well, right? And they'll maybe be 100%, 90%, 80% accuracy. The same with the really long intervals. But the ones in the middle that are roughly you know, equidistant or close to being equidistant between the two extremes, they end up having much poorer performance. They might be like anywhere from like 40 to 60% accurate. So when we plot those out, 
we can fit a very simple um, function to the data. So there's various types of functions, most of them will fit, but basically this familiar S-shaped curve that you'll often see. Um, the one that we most often use is called a logistic function. But from there, um, we can basically extract a couple of different things. One is basically essentially how steep the function is. So basically it's essentially a slope, okay? And this basically provides us with information about how precise someone is. So basically when we, when we just slightly shift the stimulus interval, they actually jump up quite a bit. So they're very responsive to just very subtle changes in the stimulus interval. By contrast, in maybe clinical populations, you typically see more flatter curve, okay? Maybe like in Parkinson's patients, for example, or something like that. Um, we can also extract another parameter, which basically tells us about how biased they are. If they're kind of relatively biased towards perceiving the stimuli as longer versus shorter, okay? And these types of temporal biases um, also can provide us with information about participants' tendency to kind of relatively overestimate or underestimate a stimulus. So these basic paradigms um, can then be used in a wide variety of contexts, right? So you could use them in neuroimaging, you could use them in to look at the effects of different types of drugs, uh, you could use them to compare clinical populations, and so on. Now, um, the last thing I'll just briefly say about that, though, is that one, one question, one issue that's been highlighted here is that, and this is something that's um, a broader issue for psychology and neuroscience is the issue of ecological validity, which is basically to what extent the paradigms we actually use have any direct bearing on the real world, right? And we're basically doing these really simple psychophysical tasks involving like simple like circles appearing on a screen or simple beeps and things like that and have people pe having people make very basic temporal judgments but this is in many respects a really inaccurate reflection of how we time things in the real world. Now, it does offer us very precise control and we're able to kind of very explicitly control all the principal features at play, but there is kind of a number of psychologists and neuroscientists have really highlighted that um, we need to move towards more ecologically valid paradigms. So like, you know, real stimuli in a real environmental context. So for example, there's a group at Sussex, um, um, they're doing, um, University of Sussex, who are doing really uh, nice work where they basically will take like videos and environmental scenes and then have participants make um, more verbal estimates about the perceived dur duration of these long scenes and then try to map that out with various types of computational approaches. And so I think that that's probably where the field will be going in the near future, there'll probably be a lot more of that line of work. Uh, so if we're looking at the experiments where there are more um, kind of laboratory uh, sterile ex experiments where people are estimating the length of a beep in isolation, that, would that be a better insight into how potentially different medication or different uh, mental conditions could affect their estimates of time? But then if we we're looking at the natural uh, kind of the actual environments they would be in, th then we would be able to potentially better estimate how those different uh, multisensory stimuli would affect them. Yes. I mean, I mean, it's a very good point and we really don't know the exact answer. I mean, all things being equal, my intuition would be that the ecological ecologically valid paradigms are going to be more informative to us in terms of, say, predicting, you know, 
timing distortions that are reported by patients in the real world. So for example, various types of clinical populations, if you subjectively ask them about their perception of time in various contexts, they'll say, yeah, I experience a lot of periods where I'll have these various types of temporal distortions of various kinds and so on. But then when you bring... Uh, what, exa- what exactly do you mean by temporal distortion? Sure. So an excellent example is a, is a, is a condition that we're actually studying um, a bit, which is known as depersonalization derealization disorder. So this is a dissociative disorder characterized by two prominent features. So depersonalization is where an individual will often feel detached from their bodily states, their emotions, their sense of self. They'll have, um, it's important to emphasize that it's not accompanied by delusions though, all right? So it's very different from some of the kind of distortions in the sense of self or other types of things you might see in schizophrenia, for example. So they know that they have a body, right? They know that their sense of self is encased within that body. They know that they're receiving bodily signals, et cetera, et cetera. But they have this persistent um, experience that it feels as if they're detached from those, from that information. So that's the depersonalization element. And the derealization element is this perception of feeling very detached from one's environment where you do not feel connected, where information in your environment feels altered in various ways. And so a good example of this is a sense of time. So a lot of people will report that time will drag on for extended periods of time, or it might be incredibly brief. Um, There'll be episodes of timelessness or time will feel fragmented, right? So like you'll kind of like jump around and it won't be this kind of consistent perceived flow of time that, you know, regular neurotypical individuals will often report. Um, So my intuition, um, which I don't think has really been, I don't know if this question has typically been studied, but I could be wrong, um, that these ecologically valid paradigms might be more informative in capturing some of those phenomena than the more basic ones we bring into the laboratory. So, for example, we are studying time perception, depersonalization, derealization disorder. We're about halfway through a study, but now it was shut down because of COVID-19, of course. But prior to this, we did a study in neurotypical individuals where we brought them in, had them complete a number of these fairly rigorous laboratory tasks with very simple stimuli. And we measured using a standard, um, widely used uh, psychometric measure of dissociative experiences. So including depersonalization, derealization in basically neurotypical healthy individuals. Now, everyone will occasionally have some dissociative experiences, okay? And it's important to emphasize that we only refer to dissociative experiences outside of drug use, all right? Because a lot of people obviously have dissociative experiences when they smoke marijuana or do other drugs, of course. We're not concerned with that here. That's not really as interesting for this type of study. So basically, um, when you look at these dissociative experiences in a large sample, I think we had around 120 people. So you are capturing a good range and you are going to capture some people that are really highly dissociative in this type of sample. So when we did this, we actually found um, that there wasn't. Could you just get get back? Sorry to interrupt you here. Sure. Uh, what was the disassociative measure that you used? Sure. So basically what it is is a, a simple um, questionnaire measure called the dissociative experiences scale, which is the most widely used and most um, prominently validated 
a measure of dissociative experiences. So I'll ask about things like um, being detached from your emotions. Um, it'll ask about more prominent episodes of dissociation that are typically not observed in healthy individuals, such as um, those reflective of what's known as dissociative amnesia or uh, dissociative identity disorder, or dissociative fugue states. So fugue states is an incredibly fascinating phenomenon that's very poorly understood because it's very rare, but these are conditions where an individual will basically have a disruption of their identity and will assume a new identity and then move somewhere else. It's very, it's a very unusual condition, but it's, and it's just so it's clear, they're not um, faking. Yeah. Cause there are obviously people. How can you tell that they're not faking? <laughs> I mean, there's always going to be the lingering question. And, but they're usually incredibly distraught over the whole thing. And as soon as they like come to like in this new environment, because oftentimes, sometimes their identity will come back and they'll find themselves in a new city somewhere across the other side of the country. And then they'll need to contact the police and say, like, I don't know where I am. Please take me back to my home. Things like this. And how many times a year does this happen? I, th I think it's I, I honestly can't tell you about the incidence of this. My just off the top of my head, I think we're talking about um, on the order of like one per 100,000 people or something like that. You know, what I mean, it's I think it's probably probably maybe one per million or something like that. It's incredibly rare. And so for that reason, it's not studied. But interestingly enough, there's a couple of questions about dissociative fugue on this questionnaire. And of course, normal uh, neurotypical individuals um, score very, very low on these types of items. Um, it also captures just more mundane states of dissociation, which we all experience, the most common of which is absorption, right? So we all get very absorbed in activities from time to time. This might be you're reading an excellent novel, right? And you're just so... Um, so caught up in the novel that you lose awareness of everything that's going on around you. And basically you'll be reading this novel and all of a sudden you'll realize that three hours has passed, right? That's a classic instance of, of time distortion where you basically just are lost in this and you'll be like, wow, it's amazing that three hours has passed, right? That sounds like Infinite Jest. Are you familiar with uh, the novel? Uh, I, I haven't read it, unfortunately, but I am familiar with the novel though. Oh, I was just thinking, like David Foster Wallace describes a piece of entertainment that's so um, entertaining that you just get lost in it, and can it's entertaining to a point of danger because people, all the people want to do is just consume that piece of entertainment, and then that kind of again relates to the time perception. Exactly right. So it's um, and that can happen on numerous contexts. I mean, it can happen while you're doing coding when you you know when you're. Yeah, when you're programming, right? It can happen while you're listening to music. It can happen in a wide variety of different contexts. Um, but briefly, um, are the what was interesting was that basically um, dissociative people in our study did not actually have different time perception. So, like, we actually look at their psychophysical function, um, psychometric functions for these individuals. They actually looked relatively normal. But what was critical was we asked them to make um, judgments regarding their confidence in their judgments. So basically they would have to estimate how confident you are in each judgment. And this allows us to study what's known as metacognition. So basically how aware you are of your performance, right? And so metacognition does not align with actual performance. So for example, if you're performing really well in a task, but you think you're performing poorly, then that's an instance of poor metacognition, right? 
Similarly, if you're performing really badly in a task, but you're aware of it, that means you have relatively good metacognition, right? And so they are, and they are dissociable. And there's a lot of fascinating work on that. But basically what we found was they had poor metacognition, right? And that kind of fits nicely with the depersonalization literature because these individuals um, will have these perceptual distortions, but they'll be very, very clear that they do not actually think that they are experiencing these genuine disconnections, but just more as it feels as if this is the common expression that they'll consistently say, it feels as if I'm detached. It feels as if um, time is altered. And so it might point more to some type of atypical uh, processing at this more metacognitive stage. And are there problems with uh, metacognition only in terms of time perception in disassociated um, individuals? Or is it throughout even mundane everyday tasks, people would overestimate or underestimate their uh, competence? Um, we don't know the answer to that question. So we didn't look at any other tasks because we, well, actually, sorry, we did include another um, task looking at other cognitive functions and they didn't have impaired metacognition on that actually. So that was more about attention and working memory and essentially to control for those types of variables because they are important in time perception. So your how you perceive time is closely intertwined with your attention. So if you're attending to a stimulus, you're more likely to perceive it as lasting longer, for example. Um, whether these individuals have broader metacognitive deficits is, is, is certainly an interesting question. Um, and that's, that's a bit of a tricky one. So there's really nice work coming out of... Um, um, a group at uh, UCL um, led by Steve Fleming, where they basically have examined a question recently about um, whether metacognition is a domain general or domain specific phenomenon. So in other words, basically, if you give people a bunch of different metacognition tasks, does it kind of load on a single factor? It, does, it, does it represent a kind of a core or uniform ability or are there different forms of metacognition? Um, now, I've only briefly seen the paper. I haven't read it in depth, but I believe that they found more evidence for a good degree of domain specificity that metacognition may represent a fairly generalized um, ability that um, is present in a wide variety of contexts, if you see what I mean. So if that is indeed the case, then we might suggest on the base of that, that depersonalization, derealization disorder, these types of conditions, you're going to see broad metacognitive deficits. Um, and that actually, yeah, so briefly, um, in another study we did, just super briefly on metacognition, we actually identified a, a selective metacognitive deficit in this one special population we were studying, but it wasn't present on another paradigm. But in schizophrenia, in a previous study, uh, using the same paradigm, they found broad metacognitive deficits. So that's something you typically will see in conditions like schizophrenia, fairly um, broader metacognitive deficits. This just makes me curious throughout studying the edge cases, how well, do, uh, what insights do we get about the average population? So through, through understanding uh, kind of the behavior and uh, kind of rare subgroups of individuals, what do we better understand about the way the average person uh, perceives time? You mean from studying clinical populations or? Uh, yes. Sure. So, I mean, a good example of this is that... Um, Based on animal studies, um, beginning from the 80s onwards, um, there's now a substantial amount of evidence to implicate uh, the neurochemical dopamine 
in the perception of time. Okay. Um, so by giving various types of dopamine agonists and antagonists to, um, to animals, typically rats, um, they'll see often notable modulations or variations in their perception of time. Now, in parallel to this work, um, there's been a, um, a large number of studies where you basically see deficits in time perception in both Parkinson's disease and schizophrenia, both of which are typically characterized by aberrant dopamine levels as well. Now, against this backdrop, um, there's been um, there was relatively little attention to the role that dopamine might play in how healthy individuals perceive time, right? And that's been something that's kind of been neglected. And so that's something we're actually investigating. And so we have found some evidence that if you use a what's known as a proxy or an indirect measure of dopamine, which we use as spontaneous blink rates, okay, and I can talk about that in a moment, we find that people's spontaneous blink rates seem to relate to variations in their perception of time. So there's a number of studies uh, going back from about 1983 onwards showing that Spontaneous blink rates are linked to um, striatal dopamine levels. So dopamine um, con uh, concentrations in a particular uh, region of, of what's known as the striatum. Um, so basically um, what you find is that individuals with uh, faster blink rates, so the greater number of blinks per minute, um, will, um, will tend to be characterized by greater dopamine levels. Um, and that's what you see in schizophrenia. Whereas patients characterized by very infrequent or low blink rates, such as Parkinson's, are known to have basically depleted um, dopamine neurons, for example, um, in regions such as the substantia nigra. So um, it's not a perfect measure, though. It should be emphasized. Um, it's very much an indirect or proxy measure. And so we're actually in very preliminary stage now to more directly estimate um, dopamine concentrations um, using other methods. But that would be one instance where you basically learn about the role of dopamine from clinical populations, and then you can bring it back to study individual differences in the general population. And that's often something you see with a wide range of different psychological functions. Is, is, is this consistent with uh, your average uh, population uh, modulating their ability to uh, their time perception throughout uh, mo modulation and dopamine levels? There are some consistencies, but there's also some discrepancies as well. Um, and I think that's due to, um, it's always going to be relative to what your kind of dopamine, you know, your baseline kind of dopamine levels are essentially. So for example, in a study, um, I'm only going to briefly mention this because we haven't actually technically finished all the analyses on it yet. And uh, just a study we recently finished. So I'm published material here. Unpublished, yes, but I don't, I don't mind saying a few things. But basically what we did find was that people with higher spontaneous blink rates, so again, suggestive of higher on average dopamine levels, at least within a neurotypical population, um, exhibit poor temporal precision, okay, on a standard timing task. But critically, they didn't exhibit poor precision on a control task, again, measuring attention and working memory. So specifically kind of linking it to timing rather than other cognitive functions. Now, this perfectly aligns with the schizophrenia literature where elevated dopamine is also associated in schizophrenia is, is potentially underlying great, uh, poor temporal precision in schizophrenia. So it fits very nicely with that literature. On the other hand, 
Parkinson's, it doesn't really fit so well with the Parkinson's literature because Parkinson's patients are also going to exhibit um, uh, both poor temporal precision, but they're on the other side of things. So the basic idea is that um, there essentially is like a an inverted U shape where there's kind of like an optimal level of dopamine. So you want this kind of mid-range level of dopamine, and that's where most neurotypicals are going to fall. But if you have too much dopamine, then you're going to have impairments in timing. If you have too little, you're also going to have impairments in timing. Is there a consistency in which direction individuals, either they overestimate or underestimate the amount of time? So um, we thought that we might find that, and that was something we included as one of our predictions, but we actually found no evidence that um, the individual differences in dopamine across individuals um, related to their tendency to be biased in favor of overestimation versus underestimation. Um, you always have to be careful with, with um, making inferences about the null hypothesis that there's no effect, but there the data is kind of in line with that. So the correlation was very, very close to zero. And we're going to be doing some Bayesian statistics just to confirm um, or at least corroborate to some degree that it's more in line with there being no effect. By contrast, previously, we did find that spontaneous blink rates related to your temporal bias towards overestimation or underestimation, but within individuals. Okay. So we think that within individuals, these, these variations in spontaneous blink rate may co-vary or correlate with fluctuations in your temporal biases, but across individuals, it does not, right? And I think that kind of makes sense because I think that most people are going to kind of, um, are going to gravitate towards a kind of a middle ground in terms of their temporal bias. So it doesn't really make much as much sense to compare my temporal bias against yours. But if you look at dopamine within me, you know, my dopamine fluctuations within me, that that might influence um, my temporal bias from one moment to the next, if you see what I mean. Yeah, and it also makes sense along the lines of uh, the spontaneous blink rates being just a proxy for the dopamine levels. And there can be systematic differences between uh, the blink rates amongst uh, various individuals. Uh, certainly. Yeah. I mean, there is also indirect links um, with this in the healthy population, in neurotypical individuals of what's known as schizotypy. So schizotypy is kind of like a healthy kind of precursor to schizophrenia. So individuals that are very high in schizotypy will report various types of anomalous perceptual experiences, perhaps hallucinations, other things like that. They often will have, they're, they're a bit more likely to form unusual beliefs um like into kind of maybe paranormal phenomena things like that or uh, magical thinking and they tend there's ev some evidence indicate they're more creative um and so they have another of other other kind of unique features so there is evidence as well that people that are high in schizotypy also exhibit are more likely to experience various types of temporal distortions and that might kind of parallel what you see in highly dissociative people to some degree but um, I'm not aware of anyone directly contrasting those two types of populations as of yet. Uh, so uh, I didn't quite understand the aspect of magical thinking, developing uh, potentially beliefs on limited evidence and uh, the temporal perception. Sure. Um, how those two would link up is something I, I'd honestly have to think about. I'm not sure to what extent there'd be a direct link between the two. It might be that they're both kind of... Um, 
driven more uh, by dopamine, for example, that the dopamine leads to these various types of temporal distortions. It also leads to um, um, a tendency to form what are known as a very precise, um, for example, priors or expectations that bias perceptual states in various contexts. And so it's not necessarily clear that they, they would be linked up. I'm just trying to think if I've I, I honestly am not aware of anything that's specifically tying uh, time perception to beliefs or delusions or anything like that. Moving back to dopamine levels and time perception, I'm quite curious about how that would impact the uh, ability of an individual to get into the state of flow and to, to uh, on their focus. Sure, I mean, that's an interesting question. Um, I have a colleague um, who's actually studying flow. I, I can't say a whole lot about flow. I don't want to critique a field, but I have to say I find the notion of flow to be um, a bit tricky to pin down. Um, I think it's something we all experience from time to time. Um, I think the concept of absorption is a little bit simpler to understand, um, where you basically just get sucked in by something and you lose awareness of what's going on around you. Flow can include, it seems, states of absorption, or at least some people might refer to states of absorption as forms of flow. But flow is also typically linked to kind of superior performance, right? That you're kind of in the zone, that you're really performing at a high level, which isn't necessarily the case with something like absorption. Um, I honestly can't really say a whole lot about uh, flow. I'm not, I'm not really familiar with that literature, nor am I familiar with to what extent dopamine might be implicated in it. Um, but I can say, yes, um, certainly people experience um, tem uh, pronounced temporal contractions uh, during flow states, where again, um, you know, less time will seem to have passed um, and, and these, types of, these types of effects. And in terms, so, so you're more familiar with uh, the state of absorption. What's the relationship between uh, temporality and the state of absorption? Sure. I mean, so um, again, um, unfortunately, that's something that hasn't, hasn't been studied extensively. I wish I could say something more informative. Um, absorption is a bit of a tricky field because to the best of my knowledge, we don't have a rigorous way to measure it. Um, so typically absorption is just measured with self-report subjective measures, right? Again, I think these can be informative in a number of contexts, but they don't lend themselves very easily to doing rigorous, like experimental research. Um, but certainly, basically, you can give somebody a movie, right? Give them a movie to watch and then ask them to rate how absorbed they felt in the content. And then typically, to the best of my knowledge, um, you're going to then experience uh, distortions where you know the more absorbed you are in something, then the less time you'll perceive less time to have passed, right? So I might watch like half hour, you know, I might, yeah, I might listen to music for half an hour and I'm just so engrossed in the music and it'll, per I, and I'll perceive it maybe only 10 minutes has passed, right? But in reality, it was actually 30 minutes, for example. Um, I'm really not aware, though, of any proper research that's been done on time perception and absorption. It's possible that something has been done, but I'm not aware of it, but um, nothing really salient comes to my mind, unfortunately. That makes sense. Uh, extend, uh, kind of, it seems like uh, we're operating in a, a space that's difficult to measure in this regard.
in terms of the entertainment pieces of information uh, for the listeners who might be coming outside of the field of psychology what would you suggest as a good starting group kind of just a single piece of uh, either literature, maybe a blog post that you'd suggest people take a look at. Um, if, if they're interested in timing, you mean? Uh, exactly, kind of, or timing or perception in general. So the first timing book that comes to my mind is that is a book by uh, Dean Buonamano. So the title is uh, Your Brain is a Time Machine. It's by Dean uh, Buonamano. So Dean Buonamano is an incredibly influential person in the time perception literature. Um, is has done a tremendous amount of work, um, mostly from a kind of a fairly low-level neuroscience uh, standpoint. He's written a number of kind of more um, pop science books that are a little bit tar- targeted more towards a general audience, but he's quite good. So he basically is um, doing it at a really nice level where he's not... Um, pop science, I think, is incredibly difficult to do well um, because you don't want to be kind of condescending to your audience. You want to kind of treat them as intelligent people and really try to engage them with some often complicated things. But some, some scientists, when they write pop science books, they just go kind of way over the head and they kind of delve into kind of niche topics that are not interesting or they'll go too low level and it's kind of just a bit mundane and not very interesting. But I, um, I read this book a few years ago. It's from 2017. Um, but, um, I think he does a really excellent job. So that's, I think that'd be a fantastic place to start. And he covers a whole host of different issues, but one of the overarching themes is that, um, a major feature of the brain is uh, making temporal predictions about our environment. And then those can shape our perception and our cognition in a myriad number of ways. Um, he obviously delves into far more complex issues than that brief summary, of course, um, but it's a, a highly, highly recommend the book. Um, and uh, again, he's an also just, he's a fantastic science, but also a, um, a great communicator of science. So that would be a fantastic place to start. All right. Uh, thanks for the suggestion. Thanks for taking the time to communicate your research area and really expand at least my understanding. Hope listeners' understanding as well. <laughs> I hope so. Well. The salient aspects of going to time yep thanks so much for the invitation and uh best of luck uh, during these uh, difficult times same to uh, your listeners cheers thank you for listening to this episode until the very end if uh, you have any feedback either positive or negative you're welcome to email me on the dictopod at protonmail.com also let me know which researchers would you like me to interview always looking forward to having conversations with a variety of researchers exploring variety of fields So as far as it interests you, I'll be interested to talking with them. That's it for this week. Next week, you can expect me to interview a researcher from University of uh, Greenwich on a far more controversial topic. That's it. I'm out. Bye.